Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today, wherever you are tuning in from. Yeah. We have been watching season three of The Chosen, and I would imagine a lot of our listeners out there have been watching, is it Chosen or The Chosen? The Chosen. The Chosen. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. We, have we talked about this before? I feel like I we, we did. Have. Yeah. But during the first season, I remember talking about it. Yeah. Was that during lockdown that we were? Yeah. That was a long time ago. I know. It was three years ago. <laughs> Anyways, thank God we're past that. Indeed. At least most parts of the world. Anyway. Um, so season three of The Chosen. We've really enjoyed The Chosen. There are a few times here and there where some of the Protestant theology of the Creator comes out, which is to be expected. But overall, we think it's really fine and excellent and I'm very happy that my kids are getting this impression of Jesus. Um, and we just the other night watched the, what was it? The, yeah, I think it's Made Clean. Oh, yeah, part, but it was part two, part two yeah. of Made Clean, which is the woman at the well. Not no, the no. woman at the well. That was season two. The, the woman, woman with, with the hemorrhage. Right. The woman with the hemorrhage. Um, I was thinking woman and flow. <laughs> oh, and that made me think, well... But I got things mixed up. Okay, so we know the woman with the hemorrhage. I thought the way they portrayed that was very compelling and moving, and I, I was, I was moved to tears even. Mm. Yeah, I think where they're, you know, taking obviously the details from the scripture, but then just using their imagination and creativity to give us a sense of a of a meaningful encounter, personal human encounter between yeah. Jesus and this woman um, that really speaks to the the real suffering in her life and his deep compassion for her. Yeah, and it's there's a there's a beautiful underlying kind of hidden, but if you have eyes to see, it's not so hidden nuptial symbolism going on here because it's her womb that's bleeding, and Jesus, the bridegroom, he says, power went out from me, goes out from his body, and and touches this woman in her most intimate feminine place, her womb, and brings about this mighty healing. I, I, I'm always struck by the scriptural story mm-hmm. when it comes up in the cycle of readings or when I'm just prayerfully meditating on my own, but to see it portrayed as they did with the backstory and and I, I I think their imagination is 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 very helpful. Just the the way they create these backstories, really moving. If you haven't seen the chosen, I don't know that you could. I mean, you could jump in in season three, but it it would be worth going back mm-hmm. and to season one and season two. I'm going to throw out this one criticism, <laughs> just because it bugged me a lot. But when they they had this this episode at the end of season two where Jesus was practicing for the Sermon on the Mount, like as if he had to memorize his speech or something. And there was something about that. I I know they're trying to make Jesus human, and I'm all for that, because he was human and divine at the same time. Got to hold that together. 
uh, but I thought they they took it a little too far there. I it's certainly not my idea of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that he would have to be writing his speech in advance and going over the lines and practicing it. And no, I'm not going to say it that way. Cross that out. Let me try it this way. No, no, no. I I think he got up there and he just shared his heart, and that's what came out. That's my take, anyway. Anyway, I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> it's true. Well, I think, you know, as we are enjoying it with some just understanding that it's not perfect. Nothing and is. Yet yeah. It's good in many ways, and we enjoy the goodness in yeah, it. Yeah, and, and the things that are good are really good. Yeah. I think, um, what's the guy's name? Jonathan Rumi, I believe, mm -hmm. plays Jesus. And I think he's doing a, a fine job. That's a that's a big ask to have somebody play Jesus. Right. And I, I think he's doing good. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah. Check it out if you haven't already. Is there anything at the Institute you want to tell our listeners about? Yes, there is. We are filling up on our cruise to in France. Not cruise to France. No. No, it's not a cruise to France. It's a river cruise it's in France. It's a river cruise in France that you and I are going to be hosting in October. And we are filling up. We're over halfway full. So those cabins will fill up. If you want to be part of this river cruise in France, we're going to start. The cruise starts in Paris. We'll have a pre-pilgrimage for those who want to do it to Lourdes. And we'll start in Paris and head up the Seine River. We're going to be following uh, the lives of St. Joan of Arc, St. Therese and her parents, who are also saints, Zelie and Louis. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be unfolding on the riverboat every day some insights about the little way and how it's related to the theology of the body and how both can illuminate the other. So if that is of interest, check out the link, learn more, and those rooms will fill up. So if you want to come. Maybe now's the time to jump on it. That's right. I'm definitely, as you know, really looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to going on a river cruise with you, oh, Wendy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a while. Well, we've never actually done a river cruise. Well, we've never done a river cruise. We went on a... Caribbean cruise. Caribbean cruise for our 20th anniversary, but that was over seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Shall I start with a question? Let's do it. From one of our patrons. This is from Juan. Hello, Juan. Thank you, Juan, for your patronage. So grateful to you. Juan says, praise the Lord for everything you do. I came across the Theology of the Body back in 2015, and I've been feasting on the teaching ever since, especially through Christopher's books, the podcasts, and currently through the TOB1 online course, Great. which has already been an incredible blessing in my life. So glad. I'm a single 27-year-old young adult. I recently met a beautiful Catholic girl on a hike. We had a great conversation, and I sensed we clicked. As the conversation unfolded, I thought it would be wonderful to continue to get to know her and potentially invite her on a date. Simultaneously, she was telling me about herself and her background. I was creating an image in my head of this young lady as a very mature 24-ish young adult professional. Eventually, the topic of age came up, and it turned out, She's 18. Whoopsie. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, Juan. Yeah. That's a bit of a change. Yeah. Now I'm at a place where I don't know if it would even be prudent to consider inviting her out because of the age factor. But 
Upon reflection, I noticed that one of the main things that would stop me from doing so is my concern for what others would say. Right. Do you have any practical advice for me? And does the church and theology of the body have anything to say about age difference and marriage? Well, here's the only thing that the church officially says about age and marriage. This is canon law. And remember, canon law is universal. So this is not something I would recommend in, in the Western world just because of our cultural situation. But canon law says to be married validly, a man, can hardly use the word man, but a man must be at least 16 years old. That's still, in Western culture, that's still a boy, in my estimation, or becoming a man, right? And a woman must be, or a girl, must be 14. So why 16 and 14? Because there's a difference. What's what's happening at 16 and 14? What's the difference between male and female during those years? Sexual maturity, right? So that's what the church is saying. You have to be sexually mature to enter the sacrament of marriage, which is the sacrament of sexual love. So 16, 14, that's canon law. There's not going to be any other official teaching of the church about age differences. Um, you know, just from my own reaction when I went, whoopsie, when you when I learned that you learned that she was 18, you know, you're 27, she's 18, so nine-year difference. When she's still a teenager, that sounds, it just strikes one as maybe you should wait a little bit. But heck, when she's 22 and you're 31, that's a bit of a different story. So then the argument might be made, well, is it really a different story? Or does it just sound better? And that's where you can get into the question of, am I just worried about what other people will think? Here's what I would recommend you do, Juan. Pray into it. It sounds like something really special kind of happened there when you met this woman on a hike. Isn't that an interesting place to meet somebody? Turns out you're both hiking this mountain. You're both Catholic. It sounds like you're both enthusiastic about your faith, something clicked, you wanted to ask her out, I don't know, uh, pray about it, see what the Lord asks you or, or wants of you, or see where maybe you get the green light interiorly as you just put that to the Lord. Um, and maybe it's something you put right out there in the open right away, like, hey, when we met that time on when on we were on that hike, I, I thought you were, my first impression was you were 24. And then when I learned you were 18, I was like, oh, bummer. I was really hoping to ask you out. And maybe you could just put that right out in the in the open and say, how do you feel about dating a guy who's nine years older than you when you're only 18? It could be that she is exceptionally mature, and that's why you thought she was 24 years old. That's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, is it likely? I don't know a lot of 18-year-old young women who are exceptionally mature, but... That doesn't mean it's not possible. I don't have any great theological nugget or wisdom or insight or quotes from the catechism, because I just think this is a prudential call and something you could pray into, think over, definitely put it out in the light with her that, yes, this could be awkward, but see what she thinks. And maybe she's like, right away, she might say, no, no, I'm 18. Uh, I'm not in a place to be dating a 27-year-old man right now, but hey, let's stay in touch, and maybe in a few years, maybe that could be your answer. 
Yeah, lots of thoughts. And I, I wanted to clarify something you said that could just be a prudential thing, because I don't know if everybody would hear the word requiring prudence in that yes. prudential, but I think that is what That's you exactly mean. That's exactly what I mean, requiring like prudence. The spiritual gift of, of prudence. Right. So I just, that may be like really what's kind of we're most called to look at here is like, what is prudent? And when I read um, one's question, I certainly felt that it's not about age difference, as you said. There, Lord knows many marriages of all kinds of age differences have existed throughout history, right, exist right. right now in all different settings. So, And many saintly marriages had big age spreads. So, yes. So, yeah, that's not, um, it's not the difference. But I do think there is a question of, in this case, her maturity, her just self knowledge, and maybe even a certain vulnerability that um, could be there in being, you know, kind of just on the, the cusp of entering adulthood and in a relationship with someone who's definitely an adult the 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 danger just seems to me a certain um, pressure to maybe catch up to where you are one in your development your maturity on her that might not be really what she should be feeling right now she sh- maybe she shouldn't be feeling those pressures to be older than she really is or she might um just not feel the same freedom just to explore who she is if in the context of a relationship with um, such a that much older young man. You're still a young man, Juan, but it is much older than she is right now. Those are my sense about just caution for her sake. And, um, you know, the Lord can bring great good out of our surrendering things like this to him. And I I do think probably if there is an ongoing relationship, the next step probably isn't a date. It's some other kind of interaction that helps you to get to know more about her without um, kind of taking it that direction initially anyway, just because, you know, of the stage of life that she's probably in as an 18-year-old. Those are my my own prudence sense of prudence of the matter. No, I, I guess. think you're elaborating on a prudential judgment mm-hmm. in the sense that I meant it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wouldn't disagree with, with anything you said. I think that's about all we have for you, Juan. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bless you, brother. I do know. I will say this too. I know you're like, well, that's kind of what we have to say. I'm thinking about friends of ours who are married. They, they have a 10 year age difference when they first met, she was a waitress serving him in a restaurant and had a feeling, that's the man I'm going to marry. Right, right. But nothing happened at that time at all. That's it was right. an instinct that she felt, and she's the one who's 10 years younger than he is. And it was several years later that their lives brought right. them back together. So just that sense of, that's part of what I mean by saying surrendering it to the Lord. It's like... He can work things out. Amen. And he worked things out for me. You know, when I moved away, when I really wanted to be dating you, I had to surrender that to the yeah. Lord. I thought he might totally forget about me. He's not going to be seeing me anymore. I had to put that in the Lord's hands and allow and him what to. Happened? And he brought us together in our well, lives. That's so, special. There you go. I'm so glad he did. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Next question. 
This is from a listener named Amy. Hello, Amy. Is it permissible for married couples to use contraception or sterilization in cases when pregnancy is likely to cause serious medical complications or death for the mother? Or are couples in this situation expected to abstain for the rest of their marriage? The question here is whether the use of contraception, which means rendering the sexual act sterile by your own choice, whether that is objectively immoral. Is this just some discipline that the church kind of throws out there, like don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent? Mm. Um, you know, a lot of Catholics, younger generations of Catholics, would not remember that prior to, I think it was the 60s, maybe after Vatican II, when the church changed the discipline about meat on Fridays, it used to be the whole year, all throughout the year, all the Fridays. discipline, every Friday throughout, perpetually, except if a special feast day came on a Friday. You know, Friday, it was just part of a, the culture of being Catholic every Friday of, of the whole year, no meat, right? After the Second Vatican Council, the bishops changed that discipline and restricted it to Lent. So, Clearly, it is not objectively immoral to eat meat on Fridays. Otherwise, you could never, ever do it, right? Is the church saying, don't use contraception, is that a discipline? Is that just a, a, a nice advice, a nice, you know, a word of encouragement? You shouldn't do this. It would be better if you didn't. No, it is not that. It is not that category. It is objectively wrong, which means there is no circumstance of any kind that could make something that is objectively wrong right in this situation. So, again, just to reiterate, when something is objectively wrong, it could never be justified. Okay, let me give you another example. It is not objectively wrong not to go to Mass on Sundays. What? Did he just, is he a Catholic and he just said, okay, well, hear me out, hear me out. If it were objectively wrong not to go to Mass on Sundays, then you would have to go to Mass even if you are sick, even if you're in the hospital, even if, you know, whatever. Um, you would be committing a sin if you're driving to Mass and your tire got, uh, was flat and you didn't make it to Mass. Well, that would be still a sin. No, it is not, it is not. An, uh, it is not a matter of objective morality, meaning in each and every situation, always wrong not to go to Mass on Sunday. How, and that's why, for example, during lockdown, the bishops could say, you don't have to go to Mass on Sunday. If it were an objective moral question, the bishops would have no authority to say, you don't have to go to Mass on Sunday. So back to the contraception thing. To render the sexual act sterile is always, and in every situation, a violation of God's plan for the sexual act, which means no circumstance, as a direct act of your intention, is rendering the sexual act sterile justifiable. Now, there are situations in which sterility happens, but is not a willful act. It's not what you are directly intending. For example, a woman with cancer of the uterus who has a hysterectomy. 
she knows that by removing her uterus, her sexual acts will no longer be f possibly fertile. However, that's not her intention. The removal of the uterus is not a contraceptive act. It's the removing of a diseased uterus in order to save the life of the mother, right? There will be the side effect that she will now be rendered sterile, but so long as she's not willing that or desiring it, but is accepting it as an unintended consequence, an un unintended side effect of a medically necessary procedure where there is no sin of rendering the act sterile. But in the case that has been brought up in this question, so perhaps the doctor has said there's been some diagnosis that getting pregnant again could cause serious medical complications. What could a couple do in those circumstances that would not violate God's plan for their coming together that would also enable them to avoid a pregnancy? And she had already brought up the, the situation of abstinence, right? Would the couple have to abstain indefinitely? Well, let's look at that as well. With modern methods of natural family planning, and if you apply the, the rules of modern methods of natural family planning with some level of strictness, uh, you can know with near 100% certainty, in fact, even more certainty than other methods of avoiding a child that would violate the meaning of the marital act. In other words, contraceptive methods, right? With modern methods of natural family planning, you can know even with greater certainty when you when you could engage in intercourse and it would not result in a child so there can be even more peace of mind than you would have for example being on the pill uh, but in practicing natural family planning you are retaining the integrity of your union and retaining that integrity is essential for the grace of the sacrament to be communicated through that union and here, I want to emphasize here, this is not just some weird, antiquated uh, prejudice against modern technologies or no, something, no. right? This has to do with the sacramentality of the marital embrace. When husband and wife come together in one flesh, they are meant to be forming a sacramental sign that really and truly communicates to them through their bodies and in fact to the whole world through their bodies because the grace of that sacrament goes out to the ends of the earth right they are meant to be forming a sacramental sign that truly communicates the mystery of life-giving love of the trinitarian exchange that can sound like lofty highfalutin theology what it really i mean okay let me let me try to unpack it just a little bit from all eternity the Father is generating the Son to live with Him in the unity of the Holy Spirit. It's not a sexual generation. God is not sexual, but this is who God is. When we say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we say we worship the God who is a trinity of persons, who is God? God in His deepest essence is a mystery of fruitful, generating, life-giving love. That's who and what God is. We marry in the name of the Trinity. 
we marry one another in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we pledge to love one another as God loves, right? This is the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He gave up his body and his blood for us. He gave up his body and his blood so that his bride might have life and have life to the full. Truly, the one flesh union, the embrace of husband and wife, is a sacramental sign designed by God to enable that eternal, infinite, life-giving love to enter into this world so that we could participate in it, become part of that. When we render our union sterile, what we are saying, whether we know it or not, we're saying, I don't want the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, to be part of this act. And we're kicking the very life-giving force, the very power of the Trinity, out of that act. Whatever that act might become when we render it sterile, it's no longer an act that images divine love and therefore does not participate in that divine love. Right? If we want a, a spirituality that does not take seriously our bodies, our, our blood, our very generative powers, then that spirituality is no longer Christian spirituality. It's an excarnate, uh, disincarnate, excarnate, if you will. It's an excarnated, angelistic, Gnostic spirituality. It's heretical spirituality. Our bodies tell a divine story. Our bodies are theological. A sexual act that spouses render sterile, they're still proclaiming theology in their bodies, but now it's heretical theology. It's no longer proclaiming the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's proclaiming a sterile God, a barren God, uh, and, and this, when we understand, and, and I'm going to quote John Paul II here directly here, he says, when we understand that the sexual act contains in itself the sign of the great mystery of creation and redemption, when we understand that we're meant to form this Trinitarian mystery and enter into it and signify it, symbolize it, communicate it, here's the quote, we have a salvific fear, he says, of ever violating or degrading what bears in itself the signs of creation and redemption. So my prayer for you is that your, your eyes, the eyes of your heart, would be open to see how holy, how sacred, how beautiful, how wondrous is the union of husband and wife in one flesh and what God's real intention is for it. And that you also then would feel it in your own stomach, feel it in your own heart, feel it in your own body that, that, that oh my gosh, I could never violate that. I could never render that sterile. So the, 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 when we fail to see the sacredness, then we can begin to think, oh, the church is making these weird distinctions. It's just opposed to modern technology. No, 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 no. What is at stake here is a is the sacramental understanding of the universe. What is at stake is the very mystery of the incarnation, that our bodies are meant to communicate spiritual and divine mysteries. 
Very powerful stuff. And I find myself just thinking about um, this, a couple in this situation, and I don't know that Amy is, maybe she knows someone in this situation, that, that there can be, there are many graces abundantly available in a time such as this. Amen. Amen. There are also many attacks from the evil one. It's yes, like yes. an internal <clears throat> struggle that the couple is experiencing between, uh, you know, these different paths. Yes. Yes. It's really important. It's very clarifying if you allow your ears to be open to this message. I think what can happen is that there's a lot of fear that can be connected to words like this from a doctor, you know, that you are in danger. Um, and maybe it comes with a certain, you absolutely must be sterilized or some kind of, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, command that is intimidating and overwhelming. And and we're trained to give such authority to the medical profession, right? right? So all they know better than we do. Right. So all of that can be influencing a couple to feel afraid to feel desperate for um, some kind of return to feeling normal and safe if they're feeling threatened. So all of that is kind of, it's fertile ground for the spirit to come in, but it, but but the evil one knows the vulnerability yep. of that time too. So I sent, I just want to acknowledge it's an intense time. And sometimes if say a woman is feeling all those things and and talks to her friend about it right at that moment it could be easy to kind of travel with her down this path that says i have to be sterilized yes, yes. to be safe again and i'm i'm under threat and that's the path to safety and we can feel compassion and feel surely that must be okay for her cuz right, look how right, afraid she right, is and right. so all that can happen in our in our relationships it is so helpful to realize the graces that are available here are the ones that can set you on a path to freedom, to true, deeper understanding of who God made you to be and who he is in your life. Preach it, Wendy, preach it. <laughs> it's so true, though, that you're, it's like, have you even really had to give your life over to the Lord before this moment? This is that kind of moment, you know, where you have to look at how have I been living up to this point? Who has God been in my life? Who do I need to realize yes, he is yes. in order to face the next step and to face my future? So really it can seem, and I think something in the wording of this question kind of implied to me a certain like, is the church really this mean yeah, or some kind yeah. of tone like that? She didn't say that, but I just kind of got that vibe. And I just want to say that that church is about, as you said, I love that word salvific. Yes. It's to save us, to, to get us, us on the path to heaven, not by following the rules, but by knowing the one who saved us and gives us so much grace. So a couple in this situation has the opportunity to develop a much deeper reverence for their own bodies and for the meaning of bringing their bodies together in the marital embrace. They have that opportunity that they maybe didn't realize before, but now they get to pause. Probably they're abstaining right now while they figure things out. Praise God. That also gives them an opportunity yes. to reflect. What is it all about? And to invite the Lord to take them on this journey of really 
knowing and appreciating and treasuring this gift so much that they would never violate it and that they would continually call upon his grace. Give us this day our daily bread. Amen. Give us what yes. we need to live this incredible calling in reality in our lives and to trust that he's going to bring so much good out of that. We, If we try to just take it in our own hands and say, I'm afraid, I'm panicked, I need to fix it. Go ahead, you know, cut my tubes, whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's a panic and a lack of any kind of deep reflection there. And we can't believe that that leads down a good path. So I, I really encourage couples that are facing this to really whew, take a deep breath mm. and let the let it go deeper to the meaning of who you are and what your marriage is and who God is. Amen. Wendy, that was powerful. That you were the spirit was blowing and you threw up your sail. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, love. It's kind of what what the Lord has given to us. It, we want to share it. It, it we ha yes, and and there are it we know from 27 years of married life being faithful to this demands sacrifice. Yeah. It demands commitment. It demands open, honest communication. It demands working it out uh, with with sometimes real sufferings. But love is not afraid of those things. Love is those things. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Hello, Christopher and Wendy. I've been married for five years now, and sometimes... I find it very difficult to like my husband. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing not, not, not at this couple. I'm laughing because I, I get it. <laughs> Sometimes I find him prideful and I can't stand it. When I pray about it, I find Jesus is asking me to love him, but I don't know how to do it. Can you please help? I want to be able to truly love him. Wow. That is so beautiful. It is. It's so beautiful. I'm really moved. This is how many questions? Like if we did the math, it, we're we're at we're well over 600 questions that we've answered mm -hmm. on this podcast, and I'm not sure I've ever been as moved mm. because she's so honest mm -hmm. and so humble, recognizing I see what I'm called. She's hearing the Lord. Yeah. She's opening it up. She's hearing the Lord, is clearly the Lord saying, you are called to love this man, right? Mm -hmm. You are hearing the Lord's voice, and you're also recognizing your poverty. I can't do what the Lord is asking me to do. Good. That is a good place to be. That is a humble place to be. You are dealing with reality right there. Mm. A few things are coming to my mind. One from St. Augustine, one from St. John Paul II. Let's go with JP2 first. JP2 says that the the what the gospel asks of us, the love and the life that the gospel invites us to, is not within the scope of man's possibilities to fulfill. It is possible to fulfill only, he says, only, he says, by a gift of God's grace. Right? I would be far more concerned if this questioner was saying, 
I find it really hard to love my husband. I know Jesus is calling me to do it, and I'm just going to buck up, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and try real hard to do it. I would be very concerned because there would be a self-reliance there that would you you you'd fall flat on your face mm. right so the humility the i can't do it the recognizing your poverty now you're in a posture of readiness to receive god's grace and this reminds me of saint augustine who said the law was given so that grace might be sought and grace was given so that the law might be fulfilled. So let's let's just walk through that. The law was given. Okay, what's the law? Jesus summarizes the whole thing when he says, love one another as I have loved you. So this listener, again, is really hearing the voice of Jesus. Yes. Which means she's really praying. You can't hear the voice of Jesus if you don't have a heart sincerely disposed to hearing it, and that's a heart of prayer. So there's, yeah, bless this person. You're really praying. You're really recognizing your poverty, and you're really hearing the Lord saying, I want you to love him. That's the law. That's the new law. That's the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That law is given so that grace might be sought. Right? So you're recognizing, okay, that's what I'm called to do. I don't have it within me. And so this very question is a prayer for grace. The law was given so grace might be sought. That's what she's doing. Grace was given so that the law might be fulfilled. So how can you do this? How can you open to grace? How can you receive this grace? There's a point, uh, I'm thinking of Peter getting out of the boat. There's a point in our journey with the Lord where we have to do, we have to step out in faith when experience is telling me I'm going to sink, we have to step out of that boat with our eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting that somehow beyond what my life has taught me, there is some greater power at work that is going to enable me to walk on water. In other words, is going to enable me to do what I know in myself and of my own power I cannot do. You are right there. You, I see you. I see this this listener, this questioner, right on the, the edge of the boat, like hearing Jesus saying, it is I, come out. And now the, the decision is yours. I, I can't make that decision for you. Wendy can't make that decision mm. for you. But you're right there. And all we can do, we can say, we can witness to you and say in our own lives, when we've been in similar situations, when we've had to step out of that boat, both Wendy and I can attest from our own life experience, it is possible to walk on water if, big if, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus. So my advice to you, fix your eyes on Jesus mm -hmm. and get out of that boat without fear. And it might mean, you know, the next time your husband's pride that really gets under your skin is on display, and you know you're called to love him in it, when you just want to wring his neck and run out of the house or whatever, or s criticize him or shame him or whatever, there's the moment where Jesus, you just look for the, look for the, look for the face of Christ, and surprise, surprise, you might find it right on the face of your husband. Mm.
you might find it right there and step out of that boat and maybe it's going to be acting against your own kind of gut instinct where you you want to shrink or you want to run the other way but perform some act of kindness some act of love go rub his shoulders go give him a kiss on the cheek and say honey can i can i make your favorite dessert tonight make some act of love take some step in that direction and see if grace doesn't enable it to be maybe not initially in terms of experience but in the overall arc of that story to become something joyful i and i just want to add i everything is so true what you're saying like the lord wants to love through us when we are not we as we recognize that we can't do it like it's not that peter developed an ability to walk on the Correct. water the Correct. lord gave that to him in his fixing his eyes on the lord and and i i think so there's there's so much fruit that can come from this situation um asking the lord you know maybe there is someone else in your past that this particular aspect of your husband is reminding you of that the mm. lord wants to to illuminate things in your own heart and story you know that is causing this to be particularly irritating I know that I have experienced that, you know, the, from the Lord. What have you been irritated at? Whom? I, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> the Lord knows us through and through. <laughs> he knows everything about us, right? So He can even bring things to mind. Sometimes it comes up in a dream, you know, and like, mm. oh wow, you know, that that's really pertinent to what I'm feeling here. Another thing is is as you're asking the Lord, like, to show you what he loves in your husband and mm. maybe what he knows about your husband, what, what's a wound or a, a painful thing in his story. That's kind of, he's compensating with this pridefulness. Like right. the Lord knows all of that. So maybe he will kind of begin to show you things about him that increase your compassion, your patience, and, mm. and also your awareness of, of his, positive and wonderful qualities. I'm reading a book right now that um, I love this phrasing. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but the author, um, it's actually a book about the parents of St. Therese. Yes, indeed. Or saints. Uh, but the author is, is talking about the Lord discovering deep in our hearts an unimaginable beauty that mm. delights him mm. and the journey of our lives being in part to allow him to look that deeply in us and to believe in what he sees there, mm. you know, and let it shine out. So if the Lord sees an unimaginable beauty that he planted in your husband, ask him to reveal it to you, mm. you know, bit by bit, because then that will, will make it easier because he's showing you what is lovable. I just want to speak from my own experience here, Wendy, that I know uh, in my own life, the, my pride has been a compensation for a deep wound, a deep insecurity, a deep lack of knowledge of who I really am as a beloved son of God. And I have experienced in our marriage your your willingness to to see that. Uh, and I have been the recipient of 
a great love through you that I know it doesn't come because you're so much better than this person who wrote this question and you figured out some trick no. in yourself to love me. No. It it came because you had this very same struggle uh -huh. that she's talking about. And you you learned how to open that up to the Lord, just as she's doing yeah, too. She is. So we we are speaking here not from something we read in a book. We're speaking here from something we've experienced. Mm -hmm. And your tenderness to if you would if you I mean, I remember times where you'd call me on my crap in ways that I couldn't receive it. And you you learned from that too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and and you learned how to show me great love in my crap, which without without sweeping my crap under the rug, it's not like you ignored it, but I was able to receive from you where you needed to call me on my crap because I could tell it was coming from a place of deep love because you understood more, like the Lord had given you an insight into what is the wound in my life that causes this crap to come out as it does? What am I compensating for, as you put it? Some wounds, some insecurity, some pain. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that stuff is real. Like, it's really real. This, this wife really could be given by the Lord an insight into a wound in her husband's heart that she's called as her, as his wife to be an intercessor for that wound to be healed. And then the more you see that compassion wells up rather than judgment or criticism or even, gosh, you, I just despise you and I want to run away. A, a beautiful, supernatural compassion can well up in the heart. And that's the beginning of a, a miracle of transformation in in a marriage mm -hmm. for reals this stuff is for reals thank you god for for the real application of the gospel in the real stuff of our of our daily lives thank you god yes we hope that whatever we've shared with you today uh that it's been a blessing we we hope that you will continue to send in your questions that's the fuel of this whole program. We're very grateful to you. We're sorry we're, we're not able to get to all of your questions, um, but we, we, we're very grateful that you submit them, and we do pray for everyone who sends in these questions, whether we're able to answer them or not. If you were blessed by what you heard today, would you consider sharing this episode with those who you know, whom you know that you believe will also be blessed? That just helps us to grow our listenership. We'd be very, very grateful to you for that. And if you have not become a patron of the work of the Theology of the Body Institute, would you prayerfully consider that? Maybe click the link in the show notes today and learn more about becoming a patron. We have some wonderful benefits that we offer our patrons, including, just want to highlight, a Theology of the Body program for parents and teenagers done by my esteemed colleague, Bill Dunahy. We recently put out a notice in the email, in our email list uh, about that, and we've gotten great response. Just want to encourage people. There's so many good benefits to becoming a patron, and your $10 or $20, whatever you're able to afford each month, goes a tremendous distance in enabling the staff of the Theology of the Body Institute to do what we do. Very grateful to you. Till next time, may you know it in your bones that you are an indispensable 
irreplaceable and unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Amy asks, is it permissible? For nope. M- Next question. Now, this is serious. I'm can so, you just I'm calm sorry. down? I, I'm so, okay. I just have this weird instinct. So, forgive me, everybody. Keep okay, going. I'm going to start over.